you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We begin with the very latest on COVID-19. Joining us from the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist and assistant clinical professor, Dr. Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, welcome back. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. Let's start first with the news that Pfizer has begun testing an Omicron-matched COVID-19 vaccine in adults. I'm just wondering if Omicron is still going to be with us by the time they get the results. <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, I think it's it's interesting. It's, I know it's something we've talked about um, before here on the show about making these uh, variant-specific. Um, vaccines. And so this is the first time it seems to actually be moving forward in clinical trials. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what they find. Yeah. And uh, do you know, if, are they just testing this against Omicron or or um, across more of, of potential viruses that, um, that could you know, evolve from Omicron? Yeah, so the, it looks like they're just doing an Omicron-specific um, vaccine. However, it looks like they'll be testing it in people who, you know, some people have received two doses of a prior um, vaccination. Some people have received three doses of a prior vaccination. And there's also going to be a group of people who have not received any um, vaccine doses. But as far as I uh, understand, it's an Omicron-specific um, um, vaccine. But But as you mentioned, I mean, one of the goals of of changing the vaccine recipe, if you will, is so that we have um, vaccines that, you know, still work really well against the virus, but, you know, maybe not the virus that's circulating right now, but you want to try to predict into the future of what virus might be circulating in six to nine months from now um, and have a vaccine that's going to provide really good uh, protection against future variants. You know, as we've seen throughout the COVID pandemic, it's really hard to predict the future. but I think the idea is to have a vaccine that um, potentially covers descendants that might come from the Omicron variant. So let's say that Pfizer is able to develop a vaccine that's effective against Omicron, and we have yet another variant that develops. Would a pharmaceutical company be able then in the lab to test out both the Omicron vaccine and one that was designed for beta or for delta and to compare and see which is most effective in the laboratory against the the new variant? 
Yeah, I think they would definitely be able to do that in a laboratory um, setting. And, and we have some of those data from, um, you know, other, you know, infections and how well our other vaccines work. And I know Pfizer and I believe Moderna as well have done some studies of looking at a small um, subset in a laboratory setting. But but I think what you really want to know is how well these work in, in humans. And I mean, I, I should just say, you know, from the beginning that we still know that actually the vaccines against the original strain, the ancestral strain of um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they actually work really well in terms of preventing um, severe disease and preventing hospitalizations, preventing deaths. So they've actually maintained their protection quite well. I think where we've seen a little bit of a decrease, obviously, is with um, preventing um, kind of any infection. And so I think that's where these Omicron-related um, vaccines sort of come in is to see if they can perhaps provide more protection against infection um, while also maintaining that really high level of, um, of uh, preventing disease severity. Um, and as you mentioned, not against Omicron necessarily, but variants that might come that might be, you know, distantly related to Omicron. Dr. Adamson, I had a question um, that relates to the current fatalities we're seeing that have been ascribed to the Omicron variant of COVID-19. There was a study from Kaiser Permanente that straddled the turn of the year, late December in into the middle of January. And it looked at 50,000 Kaiser patients who were infected with Omicron. They analyzed and found out they, they were people with Omicron. Of the 50,000 Kaiser Omicron patients, not one required mechanical ventilation, and only one of them died. For those that had the Delta variant at that time, which again is has largely petered out now, they had about 17,000 Kaiser patients with Delta during that same period. 14 of those people died versus only one from Omicron. And 11 were on ventilators as opposed to no one on a ventilator with Omicron in that group. So you look at those very stark numbers from Kaiser and a direct comparison between Omicron and Delta. And then we're looking at L.A. County averaging 61 COVID-19 deaths a day, largely attributed to Omicron because Omicron is now the dominant variant. So I'm trying to figure out how is L.A. County having dozens of deaths associated with what is believed to be Omicron deaths compared to what the Kaiser experience was in the release from two weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, you bring up really great questions, Larry. Um, and I think it's something that we've also been thinking about um, a lot, too. You know, that initially with the um, sort of initial reports that came out, the initial data that came out with Omicron, and certainly from the experiences in um, South Africa as well as in um, the UK, um, it seemed to suggest that maybe Omicron was a, a bit less severe than um, prior variants. Um, and so, and then this, the Kaiser Southern California study that you mentioned um, also sort of lend um, some data to suggest that perhaps it's um, less severe as well. Um, I think, you know, the the data from Southern California, it is quite early. So it um, includes data up until um, I think it was January 1st. So, you know, people who were hospitalized or um, in the ICU, you know, what, at that point, you know, maybe hadn't been captured yet. And we've been seeing a lot more cases the last few weeks. 
Um, I think the other thing that to keep in mind when we're uh, interpreting these data is that because it was fairly early on in the course of Omicron here in Southern California, you know, which started in earnest, let's say in December, is that when variants sort of come through um, uh, community in terms of transmission, it seems that they're infecting people who are younger at higher rates as part of the initial wave of infections. And if you look at the Kaiser data, um, actually there were much overrepresentation. Sorry, the cases of Omicron had a much higher representation of younger uh, patients in the ages of 20 to 40. So it might be that you know we didn't see a whole lot of um, severe cases in that data set because the people who had Omicron at that time were in that first wave of people who got it who tended to be younger and perhaps less likely to go on to require ICU level stays or even death. And now as the uh, transmission has increased throughout the community, we know that age is one of the biggest predictors of severity. And so it might be that we're seeing more severe cases among our elderly patients at this point in the pandemic compared to um, a month ago when this data was released. I was also wondering, because we know a significant percentage of the people who were hospitalized who test positive for COVID came in for something else. They they didn't present at the hospital with COVID symptoms, but because Omicron is so prevalent, a lot of people who've gone to the hospital uh, unknowingly had it. And I wonder, looking at, at the deaths here, I mean, some of which could be Delta-related because there are people who have been hospitalized for weeks, if not months, very, very sick people. But I also wonder if some of these could be individuals who died, yes, of COVID because COVID tipped them over the edge, but they were essentially very sick when they showed at the, up at the hospital being treated for something else. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are very hard to tease out, um, especially deaths. I mean, if somebody has a lot of, you know, comorbidities and chronic illnesses and are very sick, like you mentioned, at baseline, you know, oftentimes something can tip them over and, and unfortunately lead to their death. That can be an infection like COVID. It could be a pneumonia. Um, it can be a variety of different things. And sometimes, you know, figuring out exactly what was, you know, the underlying cause um, is is difficult, though. You know, in cases like that, we typically say that what tipped them over and the cause of death would be the infection that led to them being hospitalized. Um, but but sometimes it's it's a little bit hard to figure out exactly um, what caused that. All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC. You can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Douglas in Los Feliz emailed and said, my softball teammate says he got a rash from a recent bout with COVID. Is COVID rash a real thing? Um, yeah, Douglas, it's, it's interesting. There, I know people have reported rashes before, and there's been um, uh, you know, some things where people get little sort of blood clots in their toes, and that can lead to what was called COVID toes. Um, they seem to be fairly rare, the skin manifestations from um, COVID, but um, I guess I shouldn't say rare. They're, they're less common, but um, they're, they're not rare. So it, it is a thing that can happen um, after an infection. All right, 866-893-KPECC. Marielle in Santa Monica emailed us asking about stealth Omicron. She says, I'm recovering from a COVID-like virus complete with total loss of taste and smell, 
but have tested negative on four PCR tests, four antigen tests, and one nucleocapsid uh, nucleocapsid blood test. Uh, And um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, stealth Omicron, um, but uh, I'm just looking at our article about it now. Apparently, it's been uh, designated BA.2. Uh, the new subvariant's been found in sequences in over 40 countries globally in India, been found in um, Madhya Pradesh, West Bengal, and Maharashtra, among other states. Uh, are you are you familiar with this? I, I've not heard of this term before, Dr. Abramson. Uh, I have not heard of that term. It, it was stealth. Um, Omicron, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard of this variant that um, is closely related to Omicron, um, the BA2 variant. And it's being picked up by surveillance systems in um, a variety of countries, as you mentioned. Um, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, kind of as, uh, you know, I would worry about it the same way I worry about Omicron. It doesn't seem like it's anything too different from Omicron just yet. And in that case, I would expect that the, the diagnostic test that we do for um, Omicron would, would work in the same way that um, it would work for, for that as well. So I wouldn't say that, you know, because the clinical symptoms were similar to um, a COVID infection, but all the PCR tests were negative, um, that it means it's a stealth variant. I would say that it's probably a different viral illness. We have other viruses that are circulating in the community, things like um, RSV, for example, that can cause, you know, symptoms that are somewhat similar to COVID and make it a little bit hard to differentiate between what virus is causing um, what. So I would say it's probably more likely to be that than it is to be something that um, a um, COVID-related virus that we weren't able to detect by PCR. I'm just looking at this article in the print, which is a publication I'm not familiar with either, so I'm I'm kind of flying blind here, but it says the subvariant is nicknamed Stealth Omicron as it lacks the S gene mutation found in the original Omicron variant and which allowed it to be detected by RT-PCR tests without genomic sequencing. This is because the mutation was present on one of the three genes that PCR test target to detect the presence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would have to yeah, alter the, the sequence of the virus enough that the primers didn't bind, meaning that they couldn't amplify the spike protein. But there's also other parts of um, PCRs that amplify different regions of the virus that, um, you know, should still work in uh, detecting that virus. And that's sort of like the example that we talked about in the Kaiser um, study is what they looked at is they looked at something called um, S gene dropout. So in the uh, diagnostic test that they do, you have two genes that get amplified. If the test is positive for one and not the other, they labeled that S gene dropout. And those are more likely to be associated with Omicron um, variants than with other variants. And so that's sort of how the proxy they use to diagnose um, those patients with Omicron. Callie in South Pasadena uh, says she's heard people tout doing away with COVID protocols to get back to normal. And um, that, you know, this essentially is going to end up with herd immunity. 
That's something, of course, that we heard very early on in the virus as well from some who said, you know, we need to get to herd immunity. That's what will get us back to normal. Callie wants to know what you think about those that are, are touting the doing away with with any sort of restrictions and just riding this out with Omicron. Yeah, and I mean, it's so hard. I think at this point of the pandemic, everybody is is tired and um, and frustrated and you know, I, I, agree, I agree as well that, you know, we're tired and, and frustrated with how long this has gone on. Um, you know, I think that we have these um, uh, sort of restrictions or public health interventions uh, in place in order to pr- protect vulnerable people in our society and to help um, protect the public health. And so I think that, you know, these are things like vaccines and, and masking and um, things that we know work to um, bring down infections. And I think, you know, at, over the course of this year, our, our thinking on this is going to change, you know, as cases, you know, come down, as, um, you know, our response to the pandemic evolves. I think we'll have different um, uh, things to do. But I think at this point, with cases being so high, with you know, hospitalizations still kind of uh, very high and deaths on the rise. I think that, you know, doing away with all interventions at this point is a bit premature. I think we should still focus on doing what we can to bring down transmission. And that's, you know, getting more people vaccinated um, who haven't been vaccinated. It's getting people boosters who are eligible for boosters. It's, you know, using um, high quality, high filtration masks in indoor settings to prevent transmission I mean, those things are not what I would consider restrictions, and I think that they can really help to bring um, down community transmission of this virus. Uh, Dr. Barbara Ferrer, L.A. County uh, Director of Public Health, yesterday was talking about how the course of Omicron seems to be much more rapid than what we've seen with previous variants. People seem to get sicker sooner. Um, Their symptoms seem to abate sooner or get serious more quickly. And so what does that mean from an epidemiological standpoint? What will be the effect of what appears to be this faster progression? Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's fascinating. I mean, we've seen this now play out in South Africa and the UK, and we're seeing it play out here in the U.S., where Omicron is just incredibly transmissible. um, And the cases really just have, you know, kind of skyrocketed up in these settings and they've been followed in at least those other settings we'll wait to see here in the U.S. by a a really rapid decline um, in cases as well and it's really unlike what we've seen with these other variants now as to the reason why that is I'm not I'm not quite sure I mean there's you know the data for Omicron are still coming out but what seems to have emerged so far that uh, is that the incubation period so that's the period of time from when you are exposed to the virus to when you get symptoms and can transmit the virus is is shorter than with prior variants. So it's on the order of about four days. Um, and in addition, it looks like the time to peak virus um, also appears to be shorter than the Delta variant, uh, you know, by about a day. So with a shorter incubation period, a shorter um, time to peak virus, it might mean that, you know, people are very, very infectious really early on in the course of their um, illness. Um, compared to other variants where we sort of you were infectious for a longer period of time and your, you know, ability to isolate and prevent um, exposures to other people, um, the benefit was there because you were infectious for a longer period of time. If this happens earlier in the course, 
before you have symptoms and um, that makes it a little bit harder to block transmission. Well, and, and so what's going to happen with such a high percentage of the populace exposed to Omicron because it is so highly transmissible and and we go through this over the next few weeks, then who's going to be left for these variants that are around or future variants to infect? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. We have, you know, the combination of people being vaccinated and boosted and the people who are now have had an infection, um, there's going to be a lot of community immunity um, in a lot of places where Omicron sort of swept through. Um, and so, you know, I've never been a proponent of, of, you know, I would never tell somebody that it's a good idea to go out and get an infection. Um, I think most people would not advise getting infection, but if you, you know, do get an infection, you'd rather have an infection after you're vaccinated, of course. Um, but after you come through a period of infection, you do have um, more immunity that might protect you against future um, infections and variants. But I think the really hard thing to say, and what we've seen throughout this pandemic, is is this virus, you know, there's no set game plan for this virus. It has shown some surprises along the way, and so I don't know what is in store for us um, in the future. Is it a variant that could also um, uh, cause infections in people who have had an Omicron? I'm not sure, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to say. Well, I have a friend who just a month after having had COVID, presumably from the Delta variant, then got it with Omicron a month later. So, yeah, I guess if a variant is is different enough from Omicron, then having had Omicron might might not matter. Um, we have a question from Stephen LaCanyata, who tweeted at AirTalk, what's required for a pan-coronavirus vaccine? Does it involve making a vaccine for more than just the spike protein? Yeah, exactly. So the pan-SARS um, uh, uh, vaccines, um, these are vaccines that would elicit um, antibodies and immune um, uh, responses or immunity to uh, a bunch of different targets on the viral protein. So right now our vaccines, the mRNA vaccine specifically, um, are sort of targeting the a region of the, or sorry, the S gene, which makes the spike protein, which is what the virus uses to attach to cells and gain entry. So all of our immunity is sort of built on, um, on targeting the S gene. If you wanted a vaccine that would work against a variety of different viruses um, with different spike proteins, you know, you could target different conserved areas of those viruses that would allow for your body to develop immunity to those targets and, you know, theoretically prevent um, infections or at least severe disease um, when you're exposed to those viruses. We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson, UCLA Geffen School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist and professor at the School of Medicine. We're at 866-893-KPECC or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location with your first name. Mary in Mount Washington emailed, I had Omicron for about eight days. Now I have a sinus infection. Is that common and should I consider treating it with antibiotics? Um, yeah, I would say that we, well, first I think that, you know, 
I can't make a comment on, on specific care, but we do see um, sinus infections that can sometimes happen after, and we call them like upper respiratory viral infections. Um, so those, those happen in the past, so it's not surprising to me that it might happen with a very mild um, COVID infection that's limited to the upper airways, meaning like the ears, nose, and throat. Um, and so it's possible that a bacterial, um, a secondary bacterial infection came on, you know, in the week, you know, two to three weeks after an infection. Um, so we do see that in the past, but I would recommend she uh, goes to, to talk to her doctor about whether or not she needs treatment. Yeah, because it, 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 you know, I, I, this is quite common for those of us who've had bad colds, for example. We may have symptoms go for weeks afterwards. Yeah, and sometimes it can be related to the virus itself that it, you know, cause a lot of um, inflammation and destruction in the sinuses and your tissues are kind of building back and you have symptoms sort of related to that. But it also, all of that inflammation and sort of, you know, destruction of the linings of your sinuses can also predispose you to getting a, a bacteria that causes an infection sort of on top of that. All right. Uh, Elizabeth and Artesia emailed, is there a way to report positive results of at-home COVID tests to county or state health departments? Um, Elizabeth, I'm certainly not aware of, of uh, any way to do that. Plus, since they're not capturing all that information, I don't know what they would do with it. Uh, Dr. Adamson? I'm sorry, could you repeat that again? Yeah, sure. So Elizabeth says, for people who test positive for COVID at home, how would they report that to public health officials so they would know there's another person who's got COVID? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I think I'm not sure if there's a mechanism in place through the um, Department of Public Health to report that. I know in health systems, there's often a way to to capture that within the health system. Um, but I don't know if that those are um, what the mechanism is for reporting those to the county. But they would, you know, the county would want to know infections that are being captured at home. Um, though I do think she's right that those are being um, grossly undercounted in our, you know, sort of weekly surveillance. Uh, Doc, Dr. Paul Adamson joining us on AirTalk from UCLA. Um, one of the things that uh, I was wondering about are, are um, treatments for COVID because you many people might have heard that yesterday the FDA halted use of antibody drugs uh, that had been successful against previous variants of COVID, but had not been working against Omicron. Uh, Regeneron uh, being one of those. Um, Eli Lilly makes makes another one. So so you got two two drugs from those, you know, two big pharmaceutical companies that have been found ineffective against Omicron. What does that leave us with? Yeah, that's it's a good question. We still have other. Um, there's another monoclonal antibody that um, is available, and and monoclonal antibodies they're basically lab made versions of your human antibodies that that would bind against. Um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what they found was that the other two um, combinations of the monoclonal antibodies did not work against Omicron. And now since, you know, more than 99% of the cases in the U.S. are Omicron, um, the FDA actually revoked um, their approval for that since they're not likely to be working and they, and they do have side effects associated with them. Um, we do have another monoclonal antibody called Citrovimab, um, and that still has some activity against Omicron. Um, we also have um, last week the 
the FDA also approved um, the use of remdesivir. Um, so early remdesivir, which we usually reserve for people who are in the hospital, um, is now approved for use as an outpatient setting among people who are at um, high risk for disease progression, and that's for a three-day dose of remdesivir. Um, and then we do have our other antiviral um, medications. I think the issue is these medications are available, uh, or sorry, approved, but the availability for them is really quite limited. So the um, the county is actually managing um, all of the doses of these antivirals that are coming from the federal government, um, and and you know distributing them among people who are at highest risk for um, having severe disease. So it's actually, there's quite a shortage of these antiviral medications, um, including the monoclonal antibodies as well. Dr. Adamson, thank you very much for being with us today, providing your expertise on COVID-19. We appreciate it so much and have a great rest of the week. All right, you too, Larry. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.